The following podcast is provided by truthforsaints.com, a resource for cults, religions, and church history. Well, hello and welcome to the Truth for Saints podcast, where we look to provide a Bible-based perspective regarding world religions, cults, sects, denominations, and philosophical worldviews, all for the purpose of equipping the saints of God for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ, as it says in Ephesians 4.12. I'm Andrew Hamilton, and I'm here, as always, with Dr. Ken Hochstetter, a Bible-believing professor of philosophy, author, speaker, and good friend and brother in the Lord. We are back again today, Ken, and we're going to talk about theology proper. We'd like to talk about the attributes of God, who God is, according to Scripture. What is it about the God of Scripture that differentiates him from other gods, the God of Hinduism or the God of Buddhism or the God of Islam, or can we even know that he exists? Can we know anything about him? As we mentioned last week, we're going through the book, Thinking About Christianity, written by uh, Ken Hochstetter. What we'd like to do is provide a bit of supporting information for that book. Now, one of the the topics that you cover, Ken, uh, would be the attributes of God, or the which which is what in systematic theology would be considered uh, theology proper. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why that's important? Why it's important for us to think more about the attributes of God, and maybe you could t- tell us a few of them and and why they are important to to us in our faith. Okay, yeah. So I think I might begin with a quote from the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs nine, and then also Proverbs twenty four. Uh, Proverbs nine, verse ten says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then we read also um, what I think is a parallel verse in Proverbs 24, 3 and 4. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by the knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Um, We also read in the New Testament that we are to love, well in the Old Testament as well, Jesus quoting the Old Testament Deuteronomy, that we are to love God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our soul. So we love God with our mind, and we add wisdom and knowledge about God by thinking about the attributes of God. And so I think um, that's part of our worship of him, getting to know him. That's part of developing as Christians. And so I think it's important to think about God. And when we do, of course, we, we need to rely on Scripture, but we also need to use our good thinking and reasoning. And we learn about such attributes of God as the fact that he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, perfectly good, and has such virtues as he's patient, slow to anger, forgiving, gracious, and so on. And so uh, it's important to think about these, what they mean, how they apply to us in our lives. And I, I discuss those in, our, in my chapter. Good. Right. Yeah. Now, one of the things that, uh, that you and I have had many conversations about are the various differences with regards to the attributes of God. Uh, In my opinion, this is the one thing that separates us uh, from, as Dr. Walter Martin used to say, separates us from the kingdom of the cults. And that is, uh, who who is God, the nature of God? You have one group of people, the Mormons, that believe that God was once a man, grew into God, and then he came from a planet near a star named Kolob, grew into man, grew into perfected man, grew into God, exists as one of millions or or uncountable billions and billions of gods, 
and is the only God with whom the earthbound Mormons are to have to do. So you have that God who's quite different in his attributes. Then you also have the God of Hinduism, which suggests that all things are God, all things are Brahman, if you will, whereas uh, it's basically pantheism where all things comprise uh, God himself. You would also have panentheists where all things are in God. And then you, you have every every other variation. You'd have the, the God of, uh, of Islam who, where Allah would say that it's okay to lie. It's okay to lie if it furthers Islam, then it is okay to lie to one's enemies. It's okay to carry out violent acts against uh, one's enemies. These are quite different attributes, aren't they, of, uh, of the, from the God of the Bible? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, in... Compared to, say, the Mormons, um, whereas there's a multitude of gods, it's very clear in Christianity as well as Judaism that there's, there's exactly one God. And while, as Paul said, there are many so-called gods that people worship, there's only one real God, one living God. And in comparison to uh, pantheism, where everything is God, as well as panentheism, where everything is in God, both standing in sh sharp contrast with Christianity, according to which... God is distinct from an independent being from the universe, creator of the universe, intimately involved, especially with humans, and sustains it in existence, but is a separate, distinct being from it, pre-existed it. It depends on him, but is in no sense in him. And in contrast with Islam, which of course Islam has just one God, but the problem is that one God is the false God. It's, it's not a triune God. That God is not perfectly good and loving like the God, the true God of Christianity. Right. Well, let's talk about a few of the key attributes, which would be perhaps uh, more prominent uh, attributes that, that should be at the forefront of our mind when, when thinking about who God is. Okay. Well, I certainly would like to do that. I want to address one thing first, and that is some might be thinking, some have thought, that the idea that we could have knowledge of God is impossible, either because he's infinite and we are finite, he's so far above us that we could never access him, or maybe along the lines of the Calvinistic idea that we're so corrupt we couldn't possibly begin to understand God or, and so on. Uh, it seems to me that both of these should be rejected by a Christian. In the first instance that God is infinite and we are finite, while that's true, the very fact that uh, Christians believe that God has communicated himself to us. He's communicated many of his attributes to us. I think immediately defeats that idea that we can't understand him at all. Certainly we can't comprehend him perfectly because then, of course, we'd be omniscient. But that it doesn't follow from that that we can't have some correct and good and deep understanding of him. And I think a similar thing can be responded in response to the Calvinist. If we're so corrupt that we can't begin to understand God again. Why would God bother to reveal himself to us? Right. Uh, it seemed to me a big waste of time, but he certainly has. And so I think this idea that knowledge of God is impossible is simply not a biblical idea, not a Christian idea. The Christian biblical idea is that <clears throat> we can understand him. And as the Proverbs writer said, that that's the beginning of our understanding and wisdom is to understand and think about God. And so I think that's the way we should approach it, that we can understand him. And so then we have to figure out, well, what should we be thinking about? Well, to answer your question, then some very important features would include his omnipotence, the fact that he's all-powerful, omniscient, that is, he's all-knowledgeable, uh, all uh, perfectly good, loving, forgiving, patient, just, and just exactly what these include. 
there are also some more controversial attributes that we certainly can discuss um, whether or not God is timeless, um, in what sense he's immutable, and in what sense he's assay as the uh, virtue goes. Right. Well, I think probably for me, one of the attributes that I've been firmly convinced of over the years would be God's omniscience and his omnipotence, those two things. So why don't you talk a little bit about those two attributes and what they are and how a proper understanding of those things can can either hinder or help our faith. Okay, sure. Let's start with the omnipotence of God. So as an initial shot at this, to say God's omnipotent, I think most of us understand means to say that he's all-powerful. That much, I think, is uncontroversial. What Where I think there might be some confusion, and is certainly confusion manipulated by those outside the faith challenging it, is just what sort of range that power has. So, for example, we know that God's power allows him to create the universe out of nothing. Right. Allows him to give sight to the blind, raise the dead, raise himself from the dead. But does it carry over to things like causing contradictions to be true, like creating round squares, married bachelors, things that we would strike us as absurd? And I think... Uh, the reason this concerns us is if God can do such absurdities, it has implications in, for example, the problem of evil. If God can do literally anything, then he could both, for example, give us free will and create a good universe and also determine that there's no evil. And we couldn't use, for example, free will to get out of that because God could give us free will and also make it such that we always do good because he can create contradictions. On the other hand, if we think that God's power is restricted to what is logically possible, but unlimited in the area, then um, I think that's a better way to go. Um, and this isn't to limit God's power, but rather a category mistake to say that God could do what's logically impossible. Um, yeah. So for example, to say, I can't draw a perfect circle on the chalkboard is a limit to my power. You wouldn't say it's a limit to my power that I can't draw a round square. It's not a limit to my power. It's a category mistake. It's essentially what, what William Lane Craig, I think, made mention of this in one of his discussions, one of his podcasts at some point. Uh, he said that basically the idea behind omnipotence is he's capable, he's all-powerful, and that he's capable of doing anything that power can accomplish. Correct. That, in other words, what he uses as, as an example is, well, how many nuclear bombs does it take to make a, a square, a, a circle a square? Obviously, power can't accomplish the absurd. It's That's not even what it, it's supposed to be. So Correct. No, I think that's a, that's a perfect point, exactly what I was saying. Um, it's a category mistake. A category mistake would be applying one category to somewhere where it doesn't apply. So, for example, asking, how tall is the color red? The question doesn't even make sense. Uh, it's a category mistake because redness has no height. <laughs> it's not the sort yeah. of thing that can have height. Yeah. Like, likewise, power um, is, is just not the sort of thing that covers what's what we would say are contradictions, such as creating rocks too big that they can't be lifted or round squares. To follow up, the, some would challenge the idea. Some might say, well, your idea of God is absurd because no being could be omnipotent because it's contradictory. 
Well, that's only because such people have an improper understanding of what it means to be omnipotent and they exercise their power. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So omnipotent. So all powerful can accomplish all things that power can create. No other being like that. Tell us a little bit about what omniscience is and how that can impact the Christian. Well, to, to be omniscient, I think, again, the basic understanding is to have complete knowledge of everything. So you would know every all true propositions or claims and not believe anything false. I think that much is agreed upon. Where some controversy comes in, and this gets us into some in-house debates, would be about which propositions are true. So, for example... Some have suggested that there's no fact about what claims are true in the future because the future is not here yet, and so there's no claim Mm -hmm. about what's true in the future. So if there's no claim about what's true in the future, especially when it has to do with our free will, then God can't know that. And so what he could do is just make a best guess about the matter. That's called open theism. Open theism, yeah. yeah. I would go further as to say that that's more than controversial. I would say that that's just... um... Outright false. Utter, utter, <laughs> yeah, false. <laughs> Complete falsity. Well, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I think um, as a very famous philosopher, Alvin Plantinga said, there certainly is a fact about what I will do tomorrow, even if it's, uh, even if I'm going to do it free, where there's freely, there's a fact that I will freely do something tomorrow, and if there's a fact of the matter, then God knows it. Um, there's also a fact about what I would do in certain circumstances. And so God would seem to know those. That's uh, called God's middle knowledge, where he has knowledge of what I would do in certain circumstances. Um, all of these, I think, can be used to understand how God, say, can answer our prayers. Thinking about how God has perfect knowledge, one could bring us comfort, but also know that when God says no to us, for example, in prayer, it's because he has knowledge that we simply lack. It's good. We should maybe be a little bit more... Less, I should say not more, but less frustrated that God is not answering our prayers, for example, thinking that maybe God's ignoring us when all the while he has knowledge that we lack. And given that knowledge, puts him in a position to say, say no to us, knowing that what we're asking for would be disastrous. Yeah, yeah. Or even wait, neither a yes nor nor a a no, but uh, basically wait. So rather than questioning that perhaps being thankful <laughs> yeah you applying faith i mean you know it, it, it does take faith you know thank thank you for saying no to that thing i was asking for i yeah yeah so uh, omniscience is a good thing it is a comforting thing to know that god is all powerful and all knowing but it's only comfortable if it has this third attribute of goodness which is that he is all loving or his goodness. Because if you didn't have that, then you would have absolute misery, absolute misery, which I, for me, I think, I think the average uh, Muslim probably is aware. They probably think, okay, Allah, they believe Allah is all knowing. Allah is all powerful. He can even contradict himself. And that's kind of like their fallback statement, isn't it? Yeah. They'll say, uh, (laughs) All things are possible to Allah. Can Allah make a square circle? All things are possible to Allah. So that's their fallback, even though it makes absolutely no sense. So they believe in all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient Allah. And they do, uh, to an extent, talk about Allah as a loving God. 
but his attributes are not that of an all-loving God. No. So why don't you talk to us about that attribute, his gold, his goodness, our God's goodness, the good, the God of the Bible's goodness and uh, attribute of being all-loving. Now, that's the problem. Uh, the problem of evil is is therein. How can an all uh, an all powerful God and all loving God coexist with evil? Because if he was all loving, he would get rid of the evil, and all powerful, he would have the ability to get rid of the evil. But since evil exists, then obviously he is not all powerful, or he is not all loving. He's one or the other. So anyhow, we'll talk about the problem of evil at another time, but. Uh, for right now, let's talk about that attribute, all loving or God's ultimate goodness. Yeah, I, I, I think one thing to be said here is um, a lot of people, I think, misunderstand what it means to be loving and good. So, for example, would a loving parent ever cause pain to their child? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. Um, that a loving child, a loving parent would cause pain to their child if that's what's going to cause the child to be better. And so I think sometimes we might accuse God of not being loving, not being caring towards us because he's allowing us to experience this pain, maybe even tremendous amount of pain. Mm -hmm. And so we think, uh, as Job said, you know, if I could just reason with God, I could make my case. If he would just stand face to face with me, I could make my case to him. And then, you know, God steps forth and said, oh, oh, okay. So where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Exactly. Where were you when I established everything? Yeah. Um, I, I think um, we need to be accept accept my faith that God is good and loving, but understand that we may ha- not have a perfect understanding of what that means. Yeah. Well, you know, there's one of the things that the, the the example for me that pops into my mind is I know one time I was with my family. My son was next to me. I think at the time he was probably about nine or ten and he'd stepped down and. Uh, into the street off of the curb. We were all three standing side by side. He'd stepped down into the curb, and I grabbed him firmly by the arm and jerked him back up onto the curb, and he looked around at me in horror and shock as it hurt his arm. But within two seconds of his shock, a giant double-decker red bus screamed by only inches away from the curb. And so he didn't see that bus. He didn't see that. I saw it because uh, that's what happens when you typically uh, you learn to look both ways as you get older. And so you gain knowledge that perhaps he hadn't quite yet learned, but he couldn't quite figure out why I had hurt his arm. But it required that pain in jerking him up on the curb there. So I often think of that. I often think, well, then the Lord oftentimes will uh, allow for difficulties to come into my life or for hardships perhaps to come into my life if uh, obviously because he knows what I don't know. He sees what I don't see and haven't yet matured to a level of being able to pick up on. So I, I kind of uh, would have to walk by faith in that situation. So I think the idea is we need to put together God's omniscience with his goodness, understand that he is good, and we see that in Jesus. I mean, if you look at Jesus, Jesus took time to visit and spend time with the Samaritans, uh, which Jews hated and avoided. Jesus took time to touch, touch the lepers. Jesus took time to answer the prayers of the 
Roman centuries who were oppressing them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a Roman century said, my son, you know, is sick. And if you just say the word, he's healed. Jesus said, it's done for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. we see the lovingness in Jesus. And that's how we have to understand God, even though it doesn't appear that way in our lives. So we need to put, we need to combine our faith and mm. understanding of Jesus' love with our understanding of his perfect knowledge of us and our future and what could have been had this other thing occurred? Put all that together, yeah. and I think that's going to improve our Christian walk. It's tough, but I think it will improve our Christian yeah. walk. I agree. So, you know, and I, I run into people all the time that say, well, well, why why are you calling out these sort of false teachers and false prophets and things like that, the Rick Warrens and the Joel Osteens? Why, why, why are you calling them into question? It's not a loving thing. A loving thing would be to just let them kind of go and, and, you know, let them be and let live, you know, live and let live type of thing, that that's what love is. But it's really a very flawed definition of what love is. And it's also a very skewed definition of how Jesus conducted himself Yeah. when, uh, you know, Jesus being all loving himself, God, God incarnate in the person uh, and the second person of the Trinity, the son of God himself uh, referred to people as being sons of the devil. Um, he referred to people as being whitewashed sepulchers. Sometimes love takes sort of, it takes on a whole different approach than than just sort of the kit glove or the velvet glove approach. Sometimes it, it takes on approach of, of 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 difficulty, and sometimes it. But that's that comes down to his all loving nature. Sometimes that that love is is a blessing uh, that is obviously a blessing. Other times it comes in the pain of difficulty. That's also a blessing, but we don't see it that way. We just see it as a, as a difficulty. So yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I think, I think in taking his uh, attribute of love in conjunction with his attribute of omniscience will help us uh, perhaps maintain a, a more grounded and accurate mindset when things get tough, when things get difficult in our Christian walk. So, right. So the other attribute that uh, I wanted to talk about, about, about God is th- that's that question that all kids ask when they reach an age uh, wh- where they begin to think about things. My daughter asked, asked me about this uh, just a few years ago, who made God, <laughs> who made God? Because if God made everything, well, then who made God? So that's a question that atheists ask uh, not to find out the answer, but really as a way of casting aspersions on theism all around. So uh, why, don't, why don't we talk about what, what does this mean, necessary being, and how, how does that fit the God of the Bible? Well, the first thing I want to address, I guess, is the, how to respond to this atheistic challenge, which is not really a question, but more of just a way of trying to step, uh, uh, trip up the Christian and asking, well, then who created God? I guess the first thing to say is this, um, suppose our question is, where did the universe come from? What explains it? If I say, well, there's this being independent of the universe which created it, I have answered the question, where did the universe come from, completely, even if I can't answer the question, where did God come from? It would be like asking this, how did this house get cleaned? Well, if I said, well, a person came into the house and cleaned it, I've answered the question, even if I don't know where that person came from. <laughs> so I guess that's the first thing to say. Uh, but to the deeper question, where did God come from? Uh, most Christians have held that God's a necessary being 
or at the very least, everlasting. Uh, to say he's everlasting is to say he always was. Well, if he always was, then the question, where did he come from, makes no sense because that assumes he came from somewhere. But if he always was, he didn't come from somewhere. He just always was. Uh, but most Christians have held even further that not only is God everlasting, but a necessary being, which means this. While the world could have differed in a variety of ways, so the world could have been such that I didn't exist or you didn't exist or the world could have been such that orcs and elves existed. But to say something is necessary is to say no matter how it differed, it would have always been the case that this being exists, this necessary being. And most Christians have held that about God, that of all the different ways the world could have differed, there's not a way it could have differed where there would have been no God. And so that's what it would mean to say he's a necessary being. And if he's a necessary being, then it's impossible for him to not exist. And so the question again, where did God come from, makes no sense. So it's, it's contradictory to the declaration that God is everlasting and that uh, is without. He's the uncaused cause. Correct. Uh, all, you know, all things that come into being have a cause. Uh, and he is the uncaused cause, or the unmoved mover, if you will. Correct. That's a, that's a quote from Thomas Aquinas. But yes, so we think of things in this universe as coming to be, and they come to be from something that existed. I, I wasn't aware that was Aquinas. I thought I invented that. <laughs> the idea that uh, if something comes into being or changes, it's caused to change or come into being seems right to me. Uh, but if a being didn't come into being, but just is... God is I am, as he said in the New Testament, then the question, where did it come from, makes no sense. Uh, where, did the thing, where did the thing come from that didn't come from anywhere is a contradictory question. Yeah, exactly. Now, what I'd like to talk about, you've used this word a couple of times, but I'd like you to maybe go into what that is, this aseity of God. That is, this attribute is a key that differentiates the God of the Bible from perhaps the God of Hinduism or the God of Jainism, or any of the other sort of Eastern uh, philosophical understandings of who God is. Uh, so can you talk, talk to us about what aseity is, just define it for us, and then uh, talk about how that applies to who God is. So the aseity of God is the idea that God himself is independent from any other thing that exists apart from himself. And... Everything that exists apart from himself is dependent upon him for existence. And so that's the aseity of God. And there's somewhat controversy about this. There's a, a, a gradient here. So some might hold, some do in fact hold, that literally everything that exists, which is not God, is in, uh, independent of God, is dependent upon him, but he's not dependent on any of it. To say um, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, the other extreme would be that God exists with a a plethora of gods, and maybe they're all interdependent. Well, of course, a Christian wouldn't hold that last extreme. For the Christian, there's just one God, and anything that's not God, it to some extent depends on him. But there are some Christians who hold that there are certain objects, abstract objects, which, while God doesn't depend on them, there may be a sense in which uh, still, they're independent of him, and he didn't cause them to exist. So the idea is, what does God cause to exist? But in any case, the, the Christian idea is that God is certainly the ultimate supreme being in the universe. 
no other being is like him as far as being the ultimate supreme being. And certainly all of uh, the universe, which is the contingent created thing, depends on God's for his existence, but he doesn't depend on it and he's independent of it. Hopefully that made sense. The thing that, that I think is important about this attribute is that God is not part of his creation. Oh, that's correct. Which is contrary to, well, well it's correct, but it uh, that is not what the Hindu believes. The Hindu believes that um, all things are, are part of God. Uh, all things uh, seen and unseen, they're all part of, the, of their God. Uh, well, one of their 33 million gods, uh, but they all comprise Brahman. That's just pantheism in in and of itself. But this explains, uh, but this attribute of the God of the Bible is that he is uh, separate and apart from his creation. He is not part of it. He was not a created being himself. And I think you made this correlation uh, just a short while ago, but uh, talking about how even for Mormons, their God was created that well it's kind of a funny thing with mormonism because they don't really believe that uh the universe had a beginning because they believe that in the beginning god created they believe that that word created is organized which of course is not right there's not a single hebrew scholar anywhere that has seen that word to to mean organized but that's what they seem to believe so they they believe that all things existed in the pre-existence and so uh and then they came these things sort of came into a physical being so Theoretically, that would go go all the way back that their God, their Father in Heaven, is how they refer to hit their God. He existed in the pre-existence before he came down as a baby on a planet near a star named Kolob. Before he grew into a man and then grew into God, he existed as a spirit in the pre-existence. So, still himself being of a spirit being and then a material being, but no real separation whatsoever from the created. So there almost isn't a creator in Mormonism. If you really go deep enough, it's, it's all just, there's just a massive organizer. Yeah. Uh, and even then the organizer of this world is different from the millions and millions of other organizers of other worlds. So anyhow, that we'll talk more about that when we, when we, uh, address Mormonism, yeah. um, much further down the line, but uh, aseity is a is a big attribute to get a handle on. Yeah, let me just let me just wrap it up. I mean, I, I mentioned some controversial issues there. Let me focus on the uncontroversial. The uncontroversial aspect of aseity, which all Christians would accept, is that the universe itself, that is the spatial temporal system, and all the cr- contingent things that exist but might not have in it, are caused ultimately by God depend upon him, but yet, nevertheless, he is entirely independent of them, pre-existed them and could exist without them. But I will say this, that for those discussions that I have with Mormons, for example, in nearly every conversation I would have with a Mormon, would I'd absolutely avoid secondary issues like polygamy, talk, talking about a, the, the checkered past of perhaps some of the, the leaders of Mormonism. I would avoid talking about uh, faith plus works. I just do not understand why you would want to discuss uh, soteriology with a Mormon when uh, they're so uh, far out there with regards to their proper theology. The, 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 who their God is is completely different. So it's this subject that I start with. 
Because what first has to happen is there has to be a clear understanding that in in cult in the culture today, the Western culture and Eastern culture, and this is this is crossed over from Eastern culture, is is this idea of pluralism, the idea that all gods are the same. Um, well, you just worship him in a different way, or, or he's just expressing himself in a different way to this person than he is to that person. And there's the idea that all gods are the same God. When Really, if you sit down and look at the attributes of the gods of the various world religions and the gods of various cults, you see quite a marked difference between them and the God of the Bible. So that's why I start with this topic. I start with proper theology in going over uh, who, who the God of the Bible is. Where did he come from? What are his attributes? You know, there there are Andrew Hamiltons all over the internet. If you were to Google Andrew Hamilton, you'd come up with about uh, probably at least two dozen Andrew Hamiltons before you even got to my name. And uh, we're all Andrew Hamiltons. Some of us come from the United States. Some of us come from Australia. Some of us come from, from other countries, England or wherever. Uh, there are Andrew Hamiltons all over the place. Some of us love theology. There's a number of us that have that share that uh, one particular benefit. But really, there there is only one Andrew Hamilton. Uh, that's me, you know. And and there is only one Ken Hochstetter. That's you. And there is only one God. If God is indeed a person, and He is, there is only one God that is truly Him. And he is who he says he is. And these are the attributes that he has revealed to us through his scripture. Just to follow up with what you said, um, a proper understanding of God not only helps us to um, defend our faith against Mormonism, but just help us being uh, from being duped by false claims about God. Helps us, even if not being duped in uh, bad thinking about God, say, in our prayer life or in our day-to-day life. And so reflect, reflecting and thinking about just who God is and his attributes helps us in our daily walk, helps us from being sucked into false religions and cults, helps us to be able to see that there's just one of him and uh, he's very unique in this way and all these other gods are false gods. So, I mean, it's important to think about this. It, it's the clear definition of, of who he is and, and he's the one that gives us the definition. We don't make it up. And we don't just decide that or, or a bunch of guys just got together and decided that this is who he is. Correct. Uh, this is what he's revealed about himself to us through his word. Right. Well, that will do it for this week on the Truth for Saints podcast. As always, uh, we would invite you to visit truthforsaints.com, a great resource for researching cults, world religions, worldviews. And uh, we also would invite you to click subscribe and we'll be back next week. I think we'll go into another aspect of proper theology, and that would be specifically uh, the Trinity. So on behalf of Ken Hochstetter, I'm Andrew Hamilton, and we'll see you next week on the Truth for Saints podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by truthforsaints.com.